For natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. They are still called so, but can become, in fact, complicated forms of hatred. Love ceases to be a demon only when he ceases to be a god. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 2, The Four Loves, Chapter 1, Introduction, Part 2. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favorite C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly working our way through The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, the book he writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. <sighs> Guys, how are you all doing? You like my little uh, favorite drop in there? I know David picked up on that. <laughs> well, I hope it's their favorite. It's certainly my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I meant. Well, both. Oh, it's been a, it's a busy week. I thought this was going to be a light semester, and I have been proven woefully wrong. Uh, here at the seminary. We're recording on All Hallows' Eve, and I have not reread the Charles Williams novel in honor of All Hallows' Eve, uh, not yet anyway. But uh, all of our children in our seminary community uh, did their trick-or-treat last night. So we sat on porches and had fires and saw costumes and uh, and all of that. So in the middle of the full week, I got a wonderful email from Professor Simon Horobin. Uh He was on at the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society last last term on Zoom, and he is a, an Oxford professor who is working on C.S. Lewis's annotations to his own copies of literary works. So he's looking at Lewis's comments in the margins of his Shakespeare or his Chaucer. So he and I uh, had struck up a friendship and uh, got an email from him asking me to come to dinner at table. Um, in Hall at Maudlin next summer nice. and uh, offered to take me up to the Maudlin Tower, the Maudlin Bell Tower, and also uh, invited me to come and see C.S. Lewis's rooms at Maudlin. So, wow. That's been fun this week. <laughs> so um, a lot of cooking this week. I made a big fall uh, soup um, with some butternut squash and leeks and things. I saw in my notes to maybe put in prayer requests. So strength, certainly, uh, discernment as I'm towards my next to the last semester of seminary and lots of question marks and unknowns, uh, known, unknown to me, but the Lord certainly knows. And as always, the love of God. And I also wanted to mention a sad note, especially for those of you who ever attended a C.S. Lewis event at Camp Allen in Texas. We've got another one coming up this December 3rd and 4th. Uh, for many years, the Lewis Foundation was at Camp Allen, and the director of communications and really kind of the the, the shining light and heart and soul of uh, of Camp Allen, Tony Christopher, uh, just passed away. She was uh, marvelous mm -hmm. and had a many years struggle with cancer. Her husband died a few years earlier of lung cancer, and so now her daughter just started her first year of college, and now she's alone. So um, may... Uh, Tony Christopher, uh, rest in peace, rise in glory, and may light perpetual shine upon her. Mm. Amen. Amen. Wow. I'm going to put that one back to you now, man. <laughs> How have you been? You thought you've had a rough week, man. I know. I sit here saying I, that's that was, you know, when I was thinking about this week, I was, I was genuinely like, yeah, you know, it was really 
there wasn't anything meaningful spiritually on the surface because it was a, it's been a rough couple weeks with work. And sometimes my work is is out of my control with market stuffs, but as a perfectionist and a control freak, it's it's some it's tough to let go. And so I tend to uh, it, it can push me into escapist behaviors. And so I, I realized even this is probably one of the rougher weeks in a while. And I was actually like, you know what? I did a pretty decent job leaning into it and not sacrificing not turning away from good practices and turning towards bad practices in the same way that I felt like I did during the pandemic. So it was maybe a a mini spiritual constellation just to recognize that, that even though I'm far from where I would like to be, I have grown since the pandemic where I really noticed my weakness with that. And I even remember going through that thinking to myself really being demoralized. And so there's a little Mm. bit of a grace to be able to witness I handled it better this time. And so hmm. I did. It was almost like that analogy I had mentioned on this podcast before of you're running across a football field with weights behind you and you're incredibly disappointed with how slow you're going, but you don't realize that you are actually strengthening your muscles. And this was like one of those moments where I ran faster and I go, oh, hey, maybe that was actually for something. Still slower than I would like to be though. Well, you know, they say that the uh, the 99 swings of the sledgehammer on the rock don't break the rock, but they weaken it um, and they strengthen our own our own muscles. I also want us to be mindful, our listeners, too. Um, it just occurs to me that uh, in a similar way that the enemy probably didn't want us snooping on his business and his correspondence last last year, uh, last season, if the great commandments are to love God and to love neighbor. If the love of God is the center of the universe, the enemy is probably going to roll up his sleeves and and you know attack. He probably does not want us to be better about loving and receiving God's love. And so it may be just a timely word to be mindful of that in our own lives. And listeners, you too, we pray that God will protect you as you seek to learn more and more about love and put it into practice. And uh, I think that's a, a challenge for all of us. Amen, Father Lazo. <laughs> I actually saw something the other day. It said something along the lines of, you are incredibly valuable. Uh, the devil proves this because if you weren't incredibly valuable, he would just leave you alone. That is so much mm-hmm. like w- the statement that got me through soccer in high school. If your coach is yelling at you for not doing well, that means he still thinks you're worth making better. It's when you aren't doing well and he stops yelling at you that you honestly are kind of worthless to him. He doesn't see he doesn't see any hope or need. So it's a little bit of a different variation, but the same concept. Hmm. We have an a, a Irish couple who are both professors here, uh, marvelous uh, professors, and um, Doctor Mister and Doctor Mrs. Um, uh, Doctor Mrs. Heaney uh, says, "This is hard because it's hard." And that's such such profound wisdom. It's hard because it's hard. You know, I was waiting for is, one more sentence, <laughs> <laughs> especially because you're still in front of the camera. Like, I'm like, is it coming? Nope, that's it. <laughs> it's hard because it's hard, and uh, and that's a comfort. It should be hard. Some of the difficult things that we're doing, and of course, God wants to meet us in our weakness with His strength and His grace. Certainly, is sufficient. David, tell us about how your week's been. Uh, no real personal life updates, I would say, aside from the fact that my son continues to pile on the weight. Mm. When he was born, he was seven pounds, exactly, and they lose a little bit of weight while they're in the hospital, and then you've got to get it back. Well, 
we're now six weeks later and he's 14 pounds. Ooh, chunky. That's so ironic. I've put on at least seven pounds in the last 14 <laughs> weeks as well, or seven, six weeks. It's all hair. <laughs> yeah, so both you and, well, yeah, uh, but it's good to see that both you and Alexander have been doing well. Uh, it was funny, we, we went to Mass this morning, and all of the readings were about loving God and loving neighbor. I thought of you, Andrew. And there was another couple there who had a newborn, and we naturally spoke to them afterwards, and we found out that this kid is like another five or six weeks ahead of Alexander. Alexander looks like he could eat him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But one thing I did want to say is all of the Pants of Jack mugs have now been sent out. We sent them out to everybody that's in the premium top tier uh, on Patreon. And we also sent them out to all of our gold tier supporters who have supported us for over a year. So we just wanted to say thank you for sticking with us. And I would love to see pictures of everyone with their mugs. So please post them on social media or on the Slack channel. Uh, that would be really nice to see. Now, if you weren't one of those people... <laughs> Mugging with with Pints with Jack. <laughs> it's the mug life. Okay, that's the, hash, that's oh, the hashtag. Mug shots. The mug life. Mug, mug shots. The mug life we want to see your mug shots. <laughs> I like that. And maybe like a like a, a quote under it, the mug life chooses me. I didn't choose the mug life. Yeah. <laughs> Put a little sunglasses on your mug. <laughs> but if you would like to choose the mug life, uh, we have a way of making that happen. I recently set up a Venmo account for Pints with Jack. It's just at Pints with Jack. And if you would like one of our mugs, or if you'd like another one of the mugs, just send me $15 and I will send one out to you. And as usual, we don't make a profit off this. This is pretty much at cost. It's the cost of the mug and an average of what I think it'll take to send it to you, assuming that you are in the United States. But uh, yeah, please take a picture, share it on Instagram, uh, on social media. I'd love to see it. Yes. And you know, we're about to do... Uh, our beverages and our toast stuff, but I'll, I'll jump a little bit ahead here because we'll wind up toasting all of our supporters. So I, I won't jump to that yet, but we do want to say thank you guys, because the reason we wanted to send those mugs out is this has just been truly a blessing to us. How many of you guys have supported us? And it's not only the percentage, because we know our subscriber base, we know how many, it's amazing the quality and the quantity of you guys that are willing to, but it's also the consistency. I mean, there are so many of you that have been doing it for 12 plus months and we're really appreciative of that. And that just allows us to continue doing this. And so thank you guys for that from the bottom of our hearts. And that'll probably end up being our toast here in about 30 seconds. Absolutely. Well, while you were, uh, while I was busy, while you were uh, louding our, our, our sponsors, in fact, I got a couple of texts from my friend, uh, uh, Bud Summers, who's one of our sponsors and, uh, and, and supporters. And he sent me a picture this morning of his mug and this evening of his, his, uh, his dram glass. But while you were talking about that, Mac, I turned around and took the first mug shot. So I took a shot with my mug of us in the background recording this episode. So uh, the thing that you uh, the the thing that you saw a couple of weeks ago that was that was this episode. I, I love it. Well, let's turn to our drinks, guys. And uh, I've got an interesting one. So I sent you guys. We, we all got a little bit different stuff because the shop that I went to had in Oxford didn't have like consistently three of everything. So I kind of circle it. So I got this thing called the Lost Distillery Company, starting in twenty thirteen. They go and they find these distilleries that were shut down. And so this one was 1861. It was closed. 
and they find out kind of the recipe and what they did and they recreate some of their scotches. So I have a scotch from the Lawsett Distillery from 1861. Now it wasn't created then, but it's blended <laughs> off of how they did it. Well, I am drinking Moon Man, and I looked up the description for it, and it says, A session beer with a bright, bold blend of five hops that flirt obligingly with the smooth, multi backside. <laughs> Which I think is a wonderful description. <laughs> I, I, I try not to flirt obligingly with any backsides. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that. Oh. How about you, Andrew? What are you drinking? Well, I decided to, um, and in fact, I'm posting it on Instagram right now. I've got my Pints with Jack mug, and I'm drinking PG Tips with, uh, with some milk. And so I figured we would kind of run the gamut of, of our drinks today. So, Well, since we don't have any new patron supporter to toast, I'm just going to say cheers. Cheers to all our current ones. Cheers. <laughs> By the way, I'm pretty sure this is just Lafroy Ten. <laughs> okay, Matt, you may have to uh, you may have to flick the the glass for your for the ting. Yeah, there it is. Well, gentlemen, with that, let's jump in. Scotch in hand and summary on the way. A recap too. Yeah. So last time in the last episode, we read the first half of chapter one, which was the introduction to the four loves. And in it, Lewis admitted that he had originally thought that love was only really love insofar as it resembled the love which is God. And he therefore divided love into two, need love and gift love. Need love being the kind of love which sends a scared child to its mother, and gift love being the kind of love which causes parents to work and save and plan for the future of their children, which even they actually aren't going to see. And so Jack compared these two loves to the way that God loves us and the way that we love God. And really, for the rest of the episode, we followed him as he argued that need love is actually love, saying that we end up in all kinds of problems if we try to deny that. Uh, so that, that, was, that was my recap. Uh, do you two have anything to add? You know, there was just two quotes that were from the last episode, but they'll also come into this episode that I think are really important foundationally for connecting the two weeks and somehow understanding them. And it was, this was actually from the very last paragraph of last week's episode. A man is nearest to God when he is least like him. And we're going to learn about this likeness and this nearness approach this week. So I wanted to tease that and bring that back up here. And then if you remember, we had that conversation on lowest is never, or the highest is never without the lowest. And I might be slightly butchering that, but the the, <laughs> the essence. But this wouldn't be pints with Jack <laughs> if Matt didn't butcher a quote. <laughs> the highest does not stand without the lowest. There we go. Andrew, that's usually David that's doing that. You're, I, I always knew you were a blend between us. This time you put on your David hat. So yeah, I, I wanted uh, to share that because listeners, keep that in the back of your mind. I believe this this week it's going to be, it's there's a little bit of a gap between these two episodes of connecting them. So I thought those two would be helpful. I just, uh, for my notes, I just have been struck by, um, certainly it, it, it always goes back for me to Orwell in, as, to a certain degree, but how we are all this kind of aching maw of need. And it reminds me of the hymn, Every Hour I Need Thee. And so, yes, um, it's need love always on our side, um, but uh, God comes to meet, meet us even there. What a beautiful way to go to the 100-word summary. Jack speaks about two different kinds of nearness to God. He says that nearness by likeness is God-given, built-in, and static. Whereas nearness by approach is dynamic and growing and involves the will. 
He illustrates this with an analogy of traveling to our home in the mountains via a circuitous route. Next, Jack draws on the Swiss philosopher Denis de Rougemont, pronouncing that love becomes a demon when it becomes a god. Not when the love is at its worst, but when it is at its best. And he concludes by saying that human loves can be a positive, negative, or even neutral force on our own approach to God. Well, with that, let's jump into this week's episode. In this one, I am... I'm probably going to say this every episode because I'm really looking forward to this type of book format with this kind of conversation. But this is another one where we're we're wrestling with mental models that that uh, Lewis is putting together. And I'm looking forward to all of us if we agree wholeheartedly with how he does it, if we don't, how we interpreted it, how it connects. So this is going to be great. But David, how about you kick us off with the first part? Sure. And I'm just going to say, just to begin with, I think this book needed more editing. Yes. I think there are some connections that Lewis needs to tease out some more. I think this was rushed. Mm-hmm. One man's opinion, but uh, well, let's let's dig into the text and see if I can defend that claim. <laughs> Andrew, I can see his face is like, I've got to keep my lips sealed right <laughs> now. <dare> Delay <laughs> gratification. Oh, no, no, no. Wait, when have I ever thought that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do agree that this is part of some of the thorniest Lewis that I've ever read, but untangling it um, has been a, a lesson for me in and of itself. But please go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I definitely think there's gold here. I just think it it it's a little hidden and you you have to work a little harder than I think is strictly necessary. Until like we have faces. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, and it's also the fact I think Joy's uh, cancer had returned. And um so maybe she wasn't able to help him as much as she could write more like himself, mm. uh, which is what she did uh, for him until we have his Well, way to so. disarm us. We can't make fun of Lewis's bad writing anymore. You just associate <laughs> it with his dying wife's cancer. <laughs> I'm sorry, Lewis's what, Matt? Lewis's We'll just pretend you didn't say that. <laughs> David. Okay, so we left off last time, as Lewis was saying, that our need love for God is at the very least, the primary ingredient of a healthy spiritual condition. Uh, And Lewis says that a paradox follows from this, namely that we come closest to God when we're in the sense least like God. This is what we said earlier. And here's the quotation again. Uh, For what can be more... And here's the quotation. For what can be more unlike than fullness and need, sovereignty and humility, righteousness and penitence, limitless power and a cry for help? But this raises a question. What does it mean to approach God or to be like him? And as we continue reading, Lewis explains this with another distinction. We're going to get a lot of these over the course of this book. And here the distinction is between nearness by likeness and nearness by approach. And from what I can tell from my little bit of research, it seems that Lewis started to develop these distinctions during his Great War with Barfield. But I'm going to turn it over to you guys. How would you explain these two different types of nearness? Well, I struggle because Lewis is about to crush it in the next paragraph. And so I'm ultimately <laughs> going to end up taking what, what he said. But uh, nearness by likeness is we are similar to God in his nature. Uh, nearness by approach, though, means... We haven't necessarily, just because we were born in his image and we have characteristics uh, like him, does not mean we have assented to that relationship with him, that communion with him, that that process of theosis or sanctification or deification, however you want to look at it, that dying of yourself, letting go of your ego. And so one of them is like the starting line and the other is kind of going through, but I, I don't know if that's a 
theologically proper analogy, but that's what I think about. I probably would take it in a different direction. Um, and let me see if I can channel Steve Beebe um, and his Craft of Communications uh, book and see if I can transpose an idea. So the very worst human in the history of the world is still more near by likeness to God because he is created in God, we are created in, in God's image, than the most loving, wonderful animal, let's say. Mm. The best dog in the whole world who is obedient and loving and whatever, and, and I'm not saying anything against dogs, I love them. But the best dog in the world is, and in fact, hmm, uh, well, listeners who know more theology and philosophy than me, and angelology for sure, I think maybe, I wonder if the worst human in the history of the world is more near to God by likeness than the very best angel. I'm going to push back on that, Alex. <laughs> I actually think Lewis himself says that that's not the case, because okay. he gives us uh, an ascending ladder of likeness. He talks about Everything that God has made is like him in some way. He says space and time reflects his greatness. All of life uh, reflects his fertility and creativity. Animal life reflects his activity. Humanity, we add rationality to that. And then he goes on to say angels, they have immortality and what he calls intuitive knowledge. And that's what we don't have. Uh, and I actually did, I went down a little bit of a rabbit trail to try and work out what this intuitive knowledge is. Uh, it turns out to be how theologians talk about how spiritual beings like angels and demons come to know things. Because humans, mm -hmm. we have, we're corporeal, we have bodies. And so knowledge is mediated to us through our senses and our cognitive faculties. But angels don't have that. So uh, it's more akin to, as in the Matrix, you know, when Neo learns Kung Fu, he learns it all in an instant. That's kind of like angels. Hmm. Uh, and I'll include a link to where St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor, deals with this in his Summa. So <laughs> I would actually say by likeness, angels are closer. Guys. Yeah. No. Go. Man. I have this great <laughs> way to describe nearness by likeness and nearness by approach. What if we think about it great. as a mountain with a village? <laughs> <laughs> oh, get, it, get out of here. Hang on. Before we leave Aquinas... <laughs> I've been learning from the, the marvelous theologian Kate Soderegger, um, whose second volume of Systematics has just come out not long ago. And we've been reading Thomas, um, and we've been struggling with the Holy Trinity. It's a class on Nicaea and Chalcedon and the Nicene Creed and the ideas of the, the Holy Trinity. And one of the thoughts that I had was probably foolish, which is why I didn't raise my hand, but that did, never stops me here. <laughs> um, I wonder if... Perhaps humans relate to the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who is incarnate, because in his incarnation, we are like Christ, right? He was born a man. The second, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on human flesh, and so we can in some ways understand or identify more with the Son of God. I wonder if angels identify with the Holy Spirit. I would agree more with the first part of that. I think. After the incarnation, uh, the capacity for human nature has now been elevated since yeah. uh, what the Father said that what Christ didn't assume, he didn't raise. So that the fact that the second person of the Trinity has joined himself to human nature, taken it to the grave and back now to the right-hand side, right side of the Father, right. Uh, right. that means that we are through that, through a different sort of approach, we can be elevated. 
And I remember Pope John Paul II, he said something along the lines of that there's a song in heaven, which even the angels can't sing, only the humans, because we, we can sing the song of the redeemed. That ties in with the Felix Culpa, oh, happy fault uh, of Adam, the fact that we now get to be raised this new level. By the way, that's St. John Paul II, the Great. But, you know, if you need me to help you out with more of the Catholic terminology, I'd be happy. Thank you. That, you know. That's great. Um, I just, I think in terms of concept, man is the only one made in God's image. And so as we grapple with the concept of nearness by likeness and nearness by approach, the very worst human is closer to God in likeness than the best of anything else. Then the other part of that is nearness by approach. The best dog who is loving and obedient or whatever is perhaps, I'm guessing, I'm just spatting off the top of my head, perhaps near to God by approach. There's training, there's goodness, there's obedience, there's, you know, if a dog has will, you know, using of the will. And so that nearness by likeness will only get us so far. It's kind of like a mountain and a village. <laughs> Every listener's like, what's this? The ones that haven't read the chapter are like, what's this mountain village talk? I think it's time to bring it in. Well, you, you know, you know that all of the dogs in heaven are singing hallelujah. Okay. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Uh, but just before we le leave this section, uh, the thing that Lewis points out is that these two things are independent of each other. You can have nearness mm -hmm. by likeness and nearness of approach, and they're not necessarily the same thing. So it means that uh, you know you can have angels who are very much like God, but also angels can become demons, or they became demons. Uh, mm -hmm. So they can be near to God in one sense. You know, Lucifer can be near to God in one sense because of what he is, um, but because of what he has done, where his will is, he is further away and then say a great saint. And for me, listeners, the great takeaway is that Lewis is now categorizing these two things and helping us to think that there are two kind, at least two kinds of nearness and to think about those in those categories. Um, that is Lewis as a philosopher, and granted he hadn't studied philosophy for you know 40 years at this point and more. Nevertheless, one of the great gifts of Lewis is that he helps us to put things into thought categories. And so that's part of why I said last last week, that, you know, approaching four loves, especially these two chapters, kind of like we approach from your Christianity. Read it out loud, work through the concepts, talk it through with someone else. And there's this dictum in the four loves that the challenge for us is no, not so much to praise or dispraise, but to define and describe. So what do you mean by nearness? And okay, let's def define it. Let's describe there are two kinds of nearness and let's grapple with these things. I think even in the grappling, we can, we can see things. And for those of you who are reading along and haven't read the book yet, these concepts will later come into play as he's talking about the different loves. So just to, e just to even be able to entertain them is a great step and more than enough at this point. And those distinctions are very Lewisian and are very other Lewisian thing is to offer us an analogy. And that's what he does next. Uh, he describes us going on a mountain walk to a village, which is our home. And he says that we might come to the top of a cliff, which is just above the village. And at that point, in a sense, we are really close. However, the drop is too steep. So in order to get home, uh, if you want to get any closer, we're going to have to take uh, a long, a long, a long road that may take us at times further away from the village but it's the only way to get there. And he, Lewis says, this is, this is what we have to do if we ever want to get home and have a bath and our tea. Mm -hmm. 
So since you both alluded to this analogy, uh, what did you think of it? I'll kick us off because I absolutely loved it. I thought it was money. I put Lewis on point with another fantastic analogy. And this is one that I I would argue is, I'm, I'm not going to stand behind this, but argue at this point, maybe a top five that you really can take with you in life and apply. If you think back to a lot of things I talked about in the screw tape letters, and you think to the very end of the screw tape letters, I thought of that chapter, and this would be a classic, Matt, where I'm going to get it 75% right and you guys can fill in the gaps. But remember the last two chapters, I can't remember the second to last or the last one where he talks about it's like God puts you through a darker, 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 darker. You think you're going to break. You can't handle anymore. And then you're through it. You guys remember that? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, just I was leaving a little space in case you wanted to add something if I didn't get it fully right. No, you keep digging that hole. <laughs> David's like, I'm letting you bury yourself first, and then I'm going to dig you out and save you. I really thought of this because this journey, when you're on top of the mountain, I almost wanted to take it a step further. You can smell the dinner being cooked. You can hear the music. Almost think of it, that's almost like the analogy you're in the beginning of your spiritual journey of that constellation of that excitement. And then as you're descending the mountain, because we all talk about we, if you go on a retreat, you're on this spiritual high and you have to descend the mountain. When you're going down it, there can be dangerous zones, tough parts, parts where it feels cold, parts where you're no longer sure how far you are from the village and you can feel really distant from God. And I felt that in my own spiritual journey. But I love that this analogy allows you to realize you might be closer to your destination while you feel farther from the destination. Uh, as you're talking about that, it reminds me of the great saints mm-hmm. who the clearer they see God, the more they feel farther away from them or away from God, right? The more I see my own faults and my own weakness, the further away I feel. But maybe it's even by feeling the furthest away that we are actually approaching the closest. Mm-hmm. Um, you think of the parable of the of the sower, right? And the four kinds of soil. And the disciples come to him and go, what the heck? What was that about? What are those kinds of soil? What does it take to make good soil? And what it takes to make good soil is the curiosity for what it takes to make good soil. Hmm. By their very coming to him and showing that they want to know about good soil, they prove that they are good soil. So it's the point where they are the most ignorant and confessing their most need that they are actually closest they're expressing their need love they are expressing their need love and allowing that to 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 have god's gift love come in and it's it's second corinthians 12 it's you know thy grace is sufficient for me because his power is made perfect in our weakness Mm. and i think the more that we understand our need love for him the more even that can maybe turn into some kind of gift or at least help us to receive the, the, the gift of his love what did you think of it, David? <laughs> there was just one thing I was going to point out. Lewis calls the journey that we must make the long way round. Mm-hmm. And that just seemed a little bit too much like a phrase. So I went looking, and I think it might be a reference to James Joyce's Ulysses. But then I thought a little bit more, and I knew what it reminded me of. Joy's conversion story, which is called The Longest Way Round. Mm, right. Spot right. on. Yeah. I was quite proud of that. Are very nicely done. And our our marvelous friend, Don W. King, the professor uh, in North Carolina at Montreat College and the famous sporter of Converse, uh, who has done fabulous work on Lewis's poetry, has also done work on this and points out that Joy's conversion account um, in a book called These Found the Way um, 
The Longest Way Round was Joy's title for her spiritual autobiography, and that was written before Surprised by Joy. And Don King has suggested that maybe Lewis even models Surprised by Joy to a certain degree um, on on Joy's own account. And I would say it's maybe one of their first kind of nascent examples of collaboration. Maybe we should do Surprised by Joy next year. <laughs> I voted for it this time, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Now, in the text, Jack takes a brief aside saying that since God is the source of all good things, uh, whenever we experience good things, such as happiness or strength or freedom, we somewhat mirror God. So I want to put it over to you two. How would you connect this to the analogy? It depends what you mean by good things. Because is is a, a struggle that feels like awful pain, but is sharpening you to f- feel beauty down the road. You know, it's like you can't experience a feast until you go through a fast. Is is but is a fast a good thing or the feast a good thing? I mean, well, in the example he gives, he talks about happiness, strength, freedom, fruitfulness. Good things, actually. Uh, so these these are generally happy, good yes. things. Uh, but I would have said that that all of that stuff is nearness by likeness. Yes. It's something that you have received. It's built in, so it's like you're at the top of the cliff, uh, which is great. But that's not going to get us to the village. I would also say though that those are the, some of the rewards, or at least the first fruits of onionness by approach. So as we approach God, we experience more freedom and we experience more beauty. Um, and so I think that maybe both of those uh, have their have their place in here. To some degree, I, 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 I agree exactly with what you're saying. The only thing I'll add is from my own personal experience, although this might be a testament to me not being near to God, <laughs> If we assume my journey, let's let's start with like the beginning of it where I felt for the first couple of years really just, it was re- a lot of freedom, easy to do everything, but I somewhat now looking back associate to spiritual consolation. Now I feel like I've been going down the mountain and I'm on the other side of the mountain. So from a crow's flying distance, I'm as far away from the village as I have been. But I'm hoping that this is a winding mountain that's bringing me back and I'm learning lessons along the way. I feel less freedom right now than I did before. Um but I feel like it's in the process of feeling more freedom down the road is the way I'm looking at it. But I don't know. You could also argue I am just off into another mountain. I'm going away from the village completely and I need to backtrack my road to get back to it. So I'm, I'm literally just trying to think through what you said, Andrew, in the context of my own personal journey. Doesn't mean it's right. My journey is. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I think they certainly can be constellations that you feel as you're drawing close to God. But also not, as Andrew, you said earlier, some of the greatest saints uh, feel like they're so far away, uh, they're not actually necessarily feeling all of the all of the, the warm fuzzies. And Jack, in this section, he says that even if it's supported by grace, we have to engage our wills for this journey to the village. Hmm. And he says that it's when we do that, this is how we become sons of God. So let me jump in here with something from Early Prose Joy. Um, where Lewis has this conversion uh, to theism, but when, when he finally admits that God is God, when he converts to theism and believes in God and kneels and prays and all of that, um, he says, but then all was still to do, right? He had, done, he had come all this way to where he can admit that God was God, but then he found that everything was still to do, right? And so he gets so near, um, and he approaches so near, but then once he gets to this point of nearness, he realizes how far away he is. 
Now, in my own conversion at age 14, I realized immediately that some of my morals and ethics and, and these things that I, ways I viewed the world and, and, and viewed morality, all the rest, I knew that a lot of those things had to change. And it felt like there were these big boulders and I had to kind of clear out all of the big boulders that were standing in the way of the way. Uh, of the path that I needed to be on. And once I got all those big chunks out of the way, I could make some progress. But it's those little increasingly smaller things that I become more aware of that are on the way. And so maybe at first the way is impassable because I couldn't climb over the boulders. Once the boulders get over, I've got a rock in my shoe. <laughs> and that happens for the, and maybe those rocks get smaller and smaller through the rest of my life. And so I think that there's something to the Christian life where as we get nearer by approach, we realize how far that approach is, and it's that that it's that Pauline contra, contradistinction, right? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at, at work in you. And so it's this kind of divine partnership, I think, that always uh, has to go on. This makes more sense now why we have a little bit different view. Your journey was big boulders getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Mine was a few big boulders felt like they popped up <laughs> in the middle of my journey and started out with some small ones. And then a pandemic hits and I get some big boulders and now I'm trying to move these big boulders. So mine was a little bit like as the big boulders popped up, I feel like, and there are probably things that needed to pop up and it's good that they are because as I get through them. So mine was a little bit of like small boulders, didn't really realize, oh, there's a big boulder now and then some small ones. Mm. So I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad you use that boulder analogy. Cause like in the beginning of mine, I didn't feel like I had a ton of big boulders, honestly. Felt like a huge, just freedom and ease. And I was like, it was great. Well, the solution is the imitation of Christ. And that's the, how Lewis ends this section. He says, we need to mimic Jesus. Our imitation of God in this life must be an imitation of God incarnate. Our model is the Jesus, not only of Calvary, but of the workshop, the roads, the crowds, the clamorous demands and surly oppositions, the lack of all peace and privacy, the interruptions. For this, so strangely unlike anything we can attribute to the divine life in itself, is apparently not only like, but is the divine life operating under human conditions. Mm. And this relates back to the paradox that he identified at the beginning of the episode, uh, that we are near to God when, in another sense, we are most unlike him. I wonder if maybe this nearness by approach shows us the distance by likeness. The closer I get to God, the more clearly I see how far away I really am. Yeah, right. I, I can. As I yeah. see myself more clearly, I realize that all is still to be done, and it cannot be done by me. It must be done by Him, right? Rather like in mere Christianity, where he said, when, when in the chapter on faith, where he says, "You do everything you can," and it's only usually at that point that you have to throw up the sponge and say, "I can't do this. You must." Well, I was just going to say, in terms of my journey, that's probably the one thing where I, I, if I had to use that exact language you just used to try to at least create a mental model for what I've somewhat been experiencing, I feel like in the last 24 months is exactly that, David, because it was honestly so easy in the beginning, I thought I I didn't actually need God that much. And now it's the first time in my life I'm realizing, whew, 
So they're, they're almost good boulders. They were always going to be there. It's like, I just, I didn't see them. I, everything was just so, I hate to say this, but it was really just easy. I was in a great community. It was easy to just be disciplined, follow all the stuff, have really similar like-minded friends and everything. And it just became really tough after losing that community. And it was when I realized I wasn't that way because I'm incredibly self-disciplined and have this great internal constitution and will. It was because of the graces that were provided by the circumstances and by God. And now I'm realizing he's teaching me that that's what it was. And I need to become more dependent on that daily. But here we see our books and our seasons coming together, right? Because he talks about mere Christianity, where he kind of starts us out on training wheels, and then he takes his hand away and leaves us to ourselves even to fall. But the falling is itself a nearness by approach. We're getting closer by dint of the fact that we can fall because he's taken our hand away. I keep telling myself And let's that. also, <laughs> yes, and for us and for our listeners as well, let's remember the law of undulations, mm. right? Let's remember that we're going to have peaks and troughs. And I think that that analogy is good to come in here with the kind of the mountain and the valley. Um, there's also, in if we ever get to letters to Malcolm, um, he talks about the prayer of silence. And he says, sometimes I can pray the prayer of silence, um, but I need not be disappointed if I don't always, if I'm not always able to do so. He said, I need to to avoid the error of the Stoics to think that I can always do what I can sometimes do. And I think that as we get closer to Christ, the nearness by likeness and the nearness by approach just kind of are subsumed by the fact that we are getting nearer. And he must increase. And as he increases, those things, I think, come more closely together as we get closer to the center of the circle. So much good stuff. Well, just to connect this to theosis, in yes. Peter's letter, he talks about we've become partakers <laughs> of the divine nature. That's, that's actually kind of nearness by likeness. That's a what you are. Not, that's not quite so much about the, your will. But at the same time, it is a participation in your will. So... We, we have nearness by approach, which changes what we are. We, we are those, uh, those toy soldiers that are turned into real men and come alive. I was going to, David, bring that up. I'm glad you did, so I won't say any more on that. But I wanted to add one point to this of St. Augustine. It, you didn't mention this in your, your quotes that you brought, so I want to do it. But it, in the part where he says, and whereas the likeness to, is given to us and can be received with or without thanks, can be used or abused, the approach, and here's the key part, guys, however initiated and supported by grace. One of my favorite theological concepts I learned in my Augustine course was Augustine's theology on grace and the fact that there's like, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but there's, there's like a primary grace and a cooperating grace. And so in our own spiritual journey, as Lewis described, it's a grace that we even have the divine life. Like even your parents uh, make love and you come out of that and you're begotten. You, you had nothing to do with that. It's a gift that you even have life. That's the primary grace. So it's a gift that we even have the image of God in us and we have this. But there is a cooperating grace. So that's the initiated part, by the way. And then there's a cooperating grace that we assent to that to maintain that life. So in this case, to, to he uses the word will in here, actually. But even that willing is supported by grace, too. At least that's how Augustine thinks about it. And I'm not going to pretend Augustine necessarily fully correct on this, but I've always loved that imagery because he leaves room for us to participate and it does take will, but never 
can, it's a beautiful blending because never can we, or threading of the needle, never can we say we merited it because it's even a gift that we had it in the first place. And it's a gift that we can even participate in this, but we still do need to participate. We're back to the four loves again, where he talks about the divine life. Yes. It, come, it comes to us through a very strange way, uh, but it's our job to uh, to receive it and protect it. Yes. But it came as a gift in the first place. Although I do have to correct you, I am certain that I came via stalk. <laughs> I came into this world. I was getting um, excited. Nothing a, you can say. A stalk of what? <laughs> uh, well, and it's totus tuus, right? Isn't that what uh, mm-hmm. St. John Paul II, the Great, uh, said? Um, totus to us. Saint it's John Paul. Pope II. Saint John Paul. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was leaving a spot for you um, uh, to to pick up the fumble from. Her. No, um, it it all goes back to him. It's no nobis, right? Not to us, but to thy name give glory. And the closer we get to him, the more that we realize it is all him. And I think that love allows us a chance to realize our far farness away. And our unlikeness, but love also then becomes the medicine by which we correct those 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 ways which we are not near. Well, let's get to the next section because this was the first really big idea that struck me when I initially read the Four Loves. Because uh, in this section, Lewis explains why he felt the need to make this distinction between nearness by likeness and nearness by approach. And Jack says that Saint John's maxim that God is love needs to be carefully understood. Otherwise, you can assume the converse, that love is God. And he draws on the work of the Swiss philosopher Denis de Rougemont, uh, who says that love begins to be a demon the moment that it begins to be a God. And Lewis says that human loves at their height claim a divine authority. And he says that this is particularly seen in romance and in patriotism, in love of country. Uh, But we're going to see this throughout the book on all of the different kinds of love. And here's how he describes it. These loves tell us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful and even meritorious. Does that ring true to you? It does. Um, But I would add, uh, when we have no need love and don't surrender to divine authority that is when they do so i can i can see it plainly in my life when i'm utterly dependent on god and i find meaning and centeredness in him no love whether love of family spouse friendship let's think of what you're talking about here like rom-coms romance holding it up to the status like it's 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 never held high to me but i'm trying to be self-sufficient when i don't really have god in the center of my life Uh, i turn to these and fill these and i do hold them on divine authority and i do hold them up and uh, they do become corrupted completely. So I do think it, it does ring true in my own personal experience. So this is um, this is crucial for Lewis. Um, one of the essays that that uh, I think is underlooked, but but uh, could come in real handy here, is an essay Lewis wrote uh, called First and Second Things." And so many of our spiritual problems come when we put second things as first things. Mm-hmm. Um, or when we put first things as second things. So Turkish delight is good in its place, but to make it the main thing is going to really kind of drive you drive you crazy. Your family um, should really take priority over Turkish delight. Probably so. Absolutely. And so it, it seems like such a basic, basic concept, but I recommend it's just a few pages. Um, 
By the way, um, I'm not getting any money for this endorsement, but um, I've realized again today as I was preparing um, for an essay talk I'm going to do with William O'Flaherty. There's a marvelous book on Audible of Lewis's essays, and it's got, I don't know, a hundred essays or so. And I remember once driving back from Florida um, from when Kristen and I were engaged and getting ready for a talk that I gave to the Mythopaic Society and just listened to essay after essay after essay. And anytime it said anything good, I paused and I made a voice memo and then I included a reference to that in my talk. These are marvelous, marvelous things. And so while, of course, you, don't, you should always listen to Pints with Jack first and repeatedly, this audiobook of Lewis's collected essay is well worth the money. Um, and that may be a way to get to this first and second things. Love is going to corrupt absolutely if it is taken in the wrong order. Um, and we've all seen that happen in high school students or maybe even in our own past. When you fall in love that it, so that everything doesn't matter, um, it becomes demonic because uh, our earthly loves, our the three natural loves, romance, friendship, and family affection, they shouldn't take the place of divine love, um, but they do. And that's what we see our culture just gone, go, just gone off its, its head about. Um, they've put too much about romantic and even sexual love at the center without having it be sub, sub, uh, subordinate to the love of God. So uh, and that's part of what's going on here. By the way, I've seen this quote, love ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god, in Lewis's own copy of L'Amour et l'Occident <laughs> at the Wade Center, the love in the East, or love in the West. Um, and uh, actually, de Rougemont signed it, I think, to Lewis. Um, and I've seen this, this uh, underline there at the Wade Center. Thank you, Andrew, by the way, for Satan, better what I attempted to say, but did verbal diarrhea with... Essentially, no, when no, I don't, no, no. essentially just, when I don't have God at the center of my life, is when I hold those things up and I place way too much right. emphasis. I honestly place too much expectations on my friends, on um, if I'm in a romantic relationship or even work and stuff like things that aren't bad. They're beautiful, but they become like the end in themselves. They they're supposed to fulfill me like God is meant to fulfill me, and so they become they it can become a distorted love. And so, yeah, that's essentially what I was trying to say. <laughs> It's sugar in the gas tank. It's what Lewis said in Mere Christianity, that we are, as human beings, we're created to run on God. Mm -hmm. God is the energy on which we are to run. If we put something else other than divine love in that tank, the tank may run a little bit. If I put romantic love at the center, it's like putting diesel in, in, in where I need regular. It may run for a little while, but eventually things are going to break down. And you opened the, the door to that conversation perfectly, Matt, I thought. Uh, yeah, I was just laughing because I was thinking of David when he mentioned mere Christianity. I asked him once, but you see people who don't have God and they seem to be quite happy. And I think he gave me the rebuttal of like a plant when you pull it out from a pot that's not rooted in the right thing can live for a while, but it won't be sustained indefinitely. And I was like, that's a really dang good analogy. Absolutely. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when people quote me. <laughs> It's like that sounds that sounds reasonably smart. Um, well, transpositional David, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's the one one advantage of having a poor memory. It's like you get to experience yourself anew every day. Uh, moving on, Jack points out something really important that follows on from what he just said: that the loves make their divine claim not when they are at their worst, 
He says that they make this claim when they're at their best. He says that while lust and shallow patriotism and overindulging a child are bad, he says that our need loves may be greedy and exacting, but they do not set up to be gods. They are not near enough by likeness to God to attempt that. And he explains that need loves gone bad are nothing compared to what can happen when other kinds of loves are allowed to run amok, even so far as love becoming hate. Hat tips to till we have faces. And not only that, he says, a faithful and genuinely self-sacrificing passion will speak to us with what seems the voice of God. Our gift loves are really godlike. I only partially agree with that, by the way. Okay. Well, I think I think <laughs> go ahead and set it up so I can shoot you down. This, is, this sounds like fun to me. I think as a person who in his life had struggled with lust before and understands that and has witnessed culture and been with people and friends and stuff and you know the college scene and I understand. I feel like I've firsthand experience and um, second and third hand experience. I think something as degenerate as love and in our society can be held up as a god. Now, the way I say I partially disagree is I do think after someone indulges that long enough, they'll realize it's not the God they Mm. thought it was. But I do believe for a temporary time, our society holds lust specifically out of that list. That's what I'm pulling out as like the be all end all. And and it actually gets Mm -hmm. weaponized if you try to argue chastity is a beautiful thing. It's like, it's free love. It's beautiful. It's an expression of your desires. Like it's held up as this really pure form of us, almost godlike. And it is the center of our culture and society. So I actually think at the lowest forms, we do hold it up. But the reason I do, if you do want to think long enough and someone indulges that for a long period of time, they probably realize, wow, that really left me disappointed. It's um, it's Shakespeare's sonnet, the expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action, and till action lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of brain, full of blame, you know, past reason hunted and no sooner had, past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to take make the taker mad. Um, but the thing is, look at our culture; we fall for that same old lie about lust as being, you know, the the best thing again and again and again, and then it just gets repackaged. I mean, I think that it was a brilliant tactical move on our part, and I'm happy to self congratulate uh, all three of us to pick Screw Tape right before the Four Loves, because we have gotten used to understanding that our culture at large will tell us lies, and if love is the great commandment, and if love is the center, and if God is love, then our culture, in insofar as it is driven by the devil, will try to get us away from a true understanding of that, and it'll pervert it. Now, we're not going to get political on this podcast ever, but you can see that ideas of patriotism have turned almost demonic, whatever side of the political spectrum you want to, want to claim. To put the love of country, which is storgy or affection, as the highest love becomes tyrannical. Um, Storgy, by the way, is not only national patriot love, it's also family love, and it's also mother's love. And so you see this in Pam in The Great Divorce, Lewis's second best book, that um, her love of her son has become, she's made that more important than the love of God, and love has become a demon to her. Be, uh, you know, and love becomes a demon when we set love up as a god. When I set up anything as my ultimate good except God, it is going to let me down. And the enemy is going to try to 
keep me putting something else besides God as the central good in my life. And he's going to keep trying to trick me, and I'm going to keep falling for it. Please, God, who will deliver me from this body of death. Well said. And it's easy to fall for it if it really is good. Mm-hmm. Lewis says the likeness of these other loves is a splendor. That is why we mistake like for same. We may give our human loves the unconditional allegiance, which we owe only to God. Then they become gods. Then they become demons. Then they will destroy us and also destroy themselves. For natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain natural loves. They're still Mm -hmm. called so, but can become, in fact, complicated forms of hatred. And this does remind me of Lewis's best book, The Great Divorce, where MacDonald says, There's something in natural affection which will lead it on to eternal love more easily than natural appetite could be led on. But there's also something in it which makes it easier to stop at the natural level and mistake it for the heavenly. Brass is mistaken for gold more easily than clay is. And if it is finally refuses conversion, its corruption will be worse than the corruption of what you call the lower passions. It is a stronger angel. And therefore, when it falls, a fiercer devil. Yes, absolutely. It echoes that well, but it echoes that in kind of proleptic fashion as a rough, vague, rough first draft of Till We Have Faces, (laughs) where he talks about this complicated form of hatred, even quite specifically. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, Lewis is saying the same thing. Um, like like Barfield said, and we also see it in in mere Christianity as well. That um, a dog is capable of more good than a cow, and a and a man or a woman is capable of more good and thus more evil than a than a dog. And so an angel is capable of infinite, almost infinitely more good and more evil uh, than than a human, which is why the enemy is is so powerful. And so, um. Yes. Uh, well, a love like that, says Orwall, can grow to be nine-tenths hatred and still call itself love. So there's your kind of direct echo that Lewis rewrites into that for that passage from the Four Loves that you just um, that you just cited, David. Because as I mentioned last week, I think that what Lewis is doing here, he was writing about the Four Loves until we have faces. People didn't get it because he didn't make it maybe perhaps clear enough. Um, and so he rewrites it out in prose. And so all of those ideas from a couple seasons ago are coming through right here. Well, let's wrap up this chapter by looking at the final section where he says that we must neither debunk human love nor make it an idol. And he says mm-hmm. that the 19th century authors wrote about love as though it was the same thing as sanctification and holiness. They, they basically fell for this. Uh, but this resulted in a counterswing with the debunkers dismissing much of love as mere sentimentality and slush. <laughs> and Lewis has an interesting section at the end that I, I wonder what you guys made of it. He says that, uh, the, speaking of the debunkers, he says they're always pulling up and exposing the grubby roots of our natural loves. But I take it we must listen neither to the overwise nor the overfoolish giant. The highest does not stand without the lowest. A plant must have roots below as well as sunlight above and roots must be grubby. Much of the grubbiness is clean dirt, if only you will leave it in the garden and not keep on sprinkling it over the library table. <laughs> Marvelous. I think we should coin a new uh, a new term, schlust. <laughs> Slushy. I like that. It's a, it's a question of proportion. It's a question of having things be where they belong, right? And that's what the enemy is constantly trying to get us to do. It's what we saw all last season. Remember that evil is bent good. Evil is a good thing out of place or out of proportion. 
Remember what Screwtape said, keep your patient from all extremes. What God wants is to avoid all extremes except extreme devotion to God. And so the enemy's going to try to get us to be too much devoted to anything that isn't divine love. I personally, I don't know if this is what you were thinking, but I thought it was a little bit muddled. He got a little bit fancy here, but I agree exactly with what you just said, Andrew, of what he was trying to get at. I think it's it's not an either or, it's a both ands. He's saying you can't go to either extreme and disregard the other extreme. And so in my view here, because he brings up the highest does not stand without the lowest. That's where I got that from. It seems to be a big concept here. Gift love, this might be a little controversial, but David and I talked about this briefly before our last our Patreon call because you know, uh, our, our, our supporter was slightly late, and so we were just chatting about this. I kind of think that gift love can't, from a human perspective, not from God, from a human perspective, gift love can't exist without need love. Uh, if you If you're a human and you don't think you need God at all and you have none of that, can you really have pure, genuine gift love? And so... I think you can't have either or, you need them both. It's only when we realize our deep neediness for God, like you said, Andrew, earlier, do we receive the grace and the strength to give a true gift love as well. Because I think, Andrew, you mentioned before too, you know, with gift love, that can be perverted and self-centered. But when we have the need love, it, they're both perfected in each other, I think. Yeah, and you can't go from one to the other. But that's maybe my current controversial view. We've been talking in my class about um, the Holy Trinity and no father without a, without a son. Does the father need the son? David, were you a father before Alexander came? No, but I am a corporeal creature and therefore he necessarily follows after me. I am not sure. eternal. But you needed a son in order to be a father. Um, I also needed I'm, a wife. <laughs> you did indeed. <laughs> and your son certainly needed a father. And he needed what I'm what I'm getting at is that need love and gift love kind of have this 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 constitutive nature in God. Um and it the closer that we get to him, the more that we understand both our need and and the gift. Um and I think that that's what Lewis is trying to drive us towards. Mm -hmm. And he closes out by saying that these loves that we can sometimes mistake for divine, sometimes they can really help us on our journey towards God. Other times they can hinder us when we place them inordinately high. And also sometimes they can just not have a whole lot to do with it at all. Mm -hmm. Which is an interesting idea, which I'm sure we'll look at next week when we look at chapter two, likings and lovings of the subhuman. Mm. Well, I think that this is... Uh... Uh, kind of a marvelous discussion that that we have had, and uh, I'm grateful to Lewis. Like you said, Matt, this is one of the um, this is the one of the really good. Uh, this is the central book for me as an adult. This taught me the boundaries of love, um, and so much of what Lewis had thought all of his life is here. And I think that's why we have bounced back to so many, uh, so many different different things, uh, different essays and books, and and uh, listeners keep trudging through. Um, it gets easier after the second chapter, but um, I think he's sharpening up our, our thinking chops, and I certainly need that sharpening all the time. Yeah, and as, as before we sign off here with the last call, you know, listeners, this will be the second episode you hear with this new format of us three. Let us know what you think, because as a person recording this, and I don't know if I speak for Andrew and David, but I'm really enjoying this. In previous ways we've done these seasons, it's probably been 60, 70% text, 30% commentary around it. This time it's like 25% text, 75% commentary. 
and it, it leads to some really cool discussion. Like I really like how this evolved. I have no idea when I'm prepping for this. I have my own thoughts. I know Andrew has his thoughts. I have no idea what his thoughts are. I don't read David's thoughts, not out of laziness, but I- He never does that. But I, because I genuinely want this to be a free flowing discussion. So I've made all of my notes separate. And so if you're enjoying this, let us know. Um, if you're not, and we're just way off the mark, let us know too. But yeah, so this was fun, guys. I really enjoyed this, but I do hear the last bell at the Eagle and Child. And so I want to say thank you to all of our listeners, our Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier ones. Sterling, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, Rowdy. And we'll highlight Kay again because we just had a lovely call with her right before this. Uh, and so that was lovely. And then guys, uh, for a little bit of a call to action here, we'd love for you to go uh, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Slack. Uh, Slack you can't follow us on, but if you become a Patreon supporter, which is super helpful to us at the second tier or above, so for $5 a month, you can join that Slack community. Uh, if you write us a review, Audible, iTunes, Podbean, wherever you listen to this, that is really helpful. We we appreciate that as well because that helps with the algorithm, that helps with uh, getting more exposure, and we love to read that feedback. Uh, and check out our website, pintswithjack.com. It's been revamped. There's great. Hear, hear, David. Yeah, hear, hear, David. He slaved away on that. Uh, and then get some sweet merchandise there, T-shirts, glasses, coffee mugs. Like the T-shirts and glasses you can order on your own. Coffee mugs you can't, so either Venmo us or message us on any of our social media platforms or email us and for 15 bucks we'll send you it i'm going to challenge our listeners to dig back into our feed and see if you can find my posts that i posted while we were recording of my my cup of pg tips i also tagged pg tips on in that so maybe they'll sponsor us no they've been (laughs) useless i've done the same thing i have yet to have free tea Uh, come to my home although i had (laughs) one of my friends do the same thing i think it was with twinings and they sent her a whole load of stuff or no it wasn't it was yorkshire gold so um, oh. yeah, if, if any tea company would like to sponsor us, I will shill it for all it's worth. Oh, Bewley's. Yeah, their Irish breakfast tea. Fantastic. Well, listeners, we've enjoyed our time together. We've enjoyed exploring this most important topic. We pray that God will bless you, uh, not only with thinking better so that you can become more like the mind of God, but also with, with more love and love for each other and love of God, of course. And so, with that, we'll sign off and ask you to please join us next time. When we'll be going further up. In further in. Cheers. 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 Cheers.